Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have in the studio David Fear and Andy Green from Rolling Stone. And today's topic is biopics and why, in my opinion, even the kind of terrible biopics can be kind of awesome. And totally coincidentally, <laughs> we're also going to be talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, the new Queen biopic. I will say my favorite part of this movie might be the very beginning when you hear the 20th Century Fox theme and it is actually played by Brian May. And then ideally it would be the entire Star Wars theme performed by Brian May, but sadly it was not. Bicycle, uh, bicycle. <laughs> From there it, it has its high points and its low points. First of all, there's a lot of factual problems with this movie, right, Andy? Andy has written a, a story fact-checking it. Some fans are actually mad at Andy for even daring to fact-check it. Right. I mean, I get that any movie, they're going to compress things and to create a dramatic arc to change things around. And I point out things that in many ways are justifiable. But for me, to pretend the band broke up in the early 80s and reformed for Live Aid is so egregious, is so ahistorical that I have a hard time with it. Well, I have a theory about that. So in real life, in 1984, Queen actually wasn't the only morally problematic show they put at the time, but they booked 12 shows at Sun City in apartheid South Africa, mm -hmm. which there already was a musicians union boycott in England of it. It wasn't like they were just too early to know that this is a problem. It was egregious. I mean, luckily they didn't play all the shows. I think Mercury got a cold or something, but that was bad. So in this universe, the universe of the of the movie, they never played Sun right, City. But I think they didn't make that choice as screenwriters to just get around the Sun City thing. It's easy just to not mention that. Yeah, there's poetic license and there's poetic license. I mean, it adds drama. If you're going to tell the story of not just Freddie Mercury and I think that that's a thing to get into so basically this is a totally sanctioned queen biopic yes. and Sasha Baron Cohen left the project specifically because he was supposed to play Freddie Mercury uh, instead of Rami Malek of Mr. Robot fame who was amazing but Sasha Baron Cohen was supposed to play him and he dropped out because the Queen guys were exercising extreme control over the, the movie. Yeah. Well, it's sort of interesting that Sasha Baron Cohen, he told Howard Stern that the band said to him that they wanted to do a movie in which Freddie dies in the middle. And the, the second half is their amazing career the post-Freddie. Whereas the producer of this movie, he told me that was complete fiction. That there was never a moment when they were talking about a movie that didn't end on him dying. So the basic facts of Sasha's dropout are really in dispute. It's, it's, it's sort of interesting. You can tell from watching it that they wanted it to be the Queen story, not the Freddie Mercury story. And, you know, I think that leads to a bunch of interesting choices, one of which is you hear about his childhood, which was an intriguing childhood and, and would have been great to see. And instead, you just see a couple photo albums of it. You don't see his parents' forced migration and his, mm -hmm. his going to a boarding school overseas and, and just stuff that would have been very cinematic. And I thought that was peculiar. Well, I mean, I think that they were very intent on making a Queen biopic starring Freddie Mercury as opposed to a Freddie Mercury biopic. I interviewed Brian Singer very, very briefly during the production of this for... Who directed the movie. Yes, yeah. who's the credited director for the movie, yeah. We can get into that later. <laughs> and, you know, I kept saying, so the Freddie Mercury biopic, and he kept correcting me, saying, no, no, the Queen biopic, it's really about these four guys, and it's really about this. And they had this, I was like, with a very charismatic front man who, he's like, yes, but they all wrote the songs, and it's very much them and this, and 
you know, Andy and I were joking earlier that if you did a drinking game in which every time they had a reaction shot of Brian May in that movie, you would be drunk within the first half hour. It's so clearly, I don't want to cast aspersions, but I feel like the band's fingerprints are all over this movie. Listen, the critical response to this movie is that it's terrible for the most part, but that Rami Malek is incredible. And I agree with that for the most part because I saw it late in the game and everyone was kind of telling me that this movie just didn't work. Going with those low expectations, I actually really enjoyed it. I found it very campy and amusing even when it was it was very awkward. Let's go through some of the most the most unintentionally hilarious parts. I would say one is when they they're writing We Will Rock You. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> no, number one, they make this huge point of having Freddie Mercury not in the studio when they begin right. coming up with it. So he comes in and is like, what's this then? But, right. but um, earlier comment about yeah. the band's fingerprints right, being exactly. all over this yeah, And what's so distracting <laughs> is he walks in as fully 80s Freddie with the short hair and the mustache. It takes place in the 80s when that song is from the 70s when he had the long hair <laughs> they moved it like five years in the future for no reason details details yes yeah. and, and then so there's this part brian may explains the brian may actor who is that actor oh i can't remember his name i, uh, I, I could look at i feel like it's like not an actor like it's they tried to clone brian may and it came out sort of like <laughs> when bizarro is supposed to be a clone of superman but it doesn't come out quite right it looked that like a, that was a good reference he looked more like howard stern anyway <laughs> bizarro may yeah it was bizarro may so bizarro may is standing there and he's like explaining something that does not need to be explained at great length and then he, he actually explains it twice he's like guys he's we, like he's we like, need a call and response yeah, song he's like you see when we play a concert there is also an audience <laughs> and in the audience perhaps could be given something to do and i realized the audience do not have musical instruments however one thing they could perhaps do and it's just you're just, then when freddie comes in and it's, he sees them stomping and clapping and, and again he's completely baffled he's like what what are you doing so then Bizarre Brian May takes the opportunity to explain all of this again. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, which is the actual Brian May just trying to tell the world, I wrote We Will Rock You, Freddie Mercury did not. Yes, and not only that, but they make a point of having Freddie go, tell me, what are the lyrics? Just to make clear that he had no creative part in mm-hmm. We Will Rock You. But again, rather than being repulsed by this, I, I was really, really deeply amused. I think it should be a YouTube clip for all eternity. Oh, there's another part where he's playing a Love of My Life on the piano. You know, it includes the words love of my life maybe 30 times. Uh-huh. And then the dude goes, it's beautiful. What is it called? And he's like, very solemn. He goes, love of my life. And it's just, <laughs> there's something about that that just I just laughed out loud in, in the theater. And that, l- let's talk about that character. So there's, there's this character who's becomes his solo manager he, he's another gay guy mm-hmm. and he's portrayed as all that is evil he pulls freddie into the world of decadence and but even worse of not appreciating the other queen guys quite as much as he should <laughs> the, that, real, that's, the original sin <laughs> the original sin of all mankind of course so is that a real thing who is yeah, that guy it was real it was distorted he did have that character in his life that did go public and talk about their relationship but to make him just the spawn of satan i think was not quite accurate <laughs> they have him calling they're like we've got to play live aid and he, he's just like yeah i'll tell him and then like hangs up the phone of yeah. course that is another total fiction let's hear love of my life for a second you've broken my heart and now you Love of my life. Can't imagine what that song would be called. Yeah. <laughs> 
what other parts struck you as slightly unintentionally hilarious? And we're also being joined by uh, Brittany Spanos in the studio. Okay, I'll tell you what my favorite yeah. scene in the entire film is. So there's this fictional character. I believe he's fictional, right? The Mike Dur? Oh, he yeah, is, let's get let's dig into this. He's yeah. based off somebody real, but they changed the name and changed everything else. Right, so he's this conspicuously Scottish music executive <laughs> sitting in this office dealing with Queen, and he's asking for another hit. They've just had, I forget what the hit it was. They was just, Killer Queen. It was Killer Queen. He's like, we need another Killer Queen. And Freddie Mercury is getting very agitated, and he says, we don't just, you know, spit out these hits. We don't just work according to a formula, at which point in thick Scottish brogue, Mike Myers yells at the band and by extension us, formulas work! (laughs) At which point it's the most meta moment in that movie. It is burying the lead. It is self-owning right there. I I will go ahead and disagree with you because the most meta moment in the movie comes moments later when the oh, Mike yes. Myers character goes, and I won't do the Scottish accent, but he's talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, and he's, I guess maybe it's in the next scene, they deliver Bohemian Rhapsody, he's talking about it, and he's like, no two teenagers will ever sit in a car and headbang to this song, and you're just like, why did wink, you do that? Nudge, <laughs> wink, nudge, wink. Wink, nudge, like, weirdly, they did a, one of those 4D things, and my chair actually rumbled at that moment, <laughs> just, just, just to under, in case you oh, didn't my get ribs. it. Yeah, it's one of those things where you understand the impulse, right? It's so cute, but at some point, someone should have been like, no, yeah. just don't do it. It's not just just taking you out of the movie it's just like shoving you out of the theater it was it was vaguely horrifying in its clumsiness and all those scenes actually of them the scenes that weren't even sort of campily funny but just didn't work were of people sitting in a conference room because that's not Brian Singer's strength there's never a scene in the X-Men movies where they're just sitting around like having coffee and <laughs> I that, feel like that there's works. a director's cut of the second X-Men movie where it's a lot of mutants just sitting around conference rooms wondering what they're going to do yeah. wondering where their next killer queen is <laughs> I guess that in a movie it's like this you need villains they need to rise above stuff so there's a fake record executive they throw a brick through his window they refuse to compromise on their art yeah they could have murdered Mike Myers character <laughs> <laughs> this is a bizarre moment of just like all of a sudden they're Johnny Rotten. They're throwing a totally fictional, I don't know, was it really a brick? I don't know. If a rock? A I don't they're, know. They're throwing a, a totally fictional projectile through the window of a totally fictional executive yeah. and, I, I to make hope, themselves look cool. I sort of hope it was a rock because then yeah. that was how they came up with We Will Rock You. Oh, <laughs> hey. The eureka moment we yeah. really needed in this movie. Yeah. What's interesting, I was going to ask you, uh, David Fear, as sort of a historian of film, what are some other examples in general of a truly great performance, perhaps even Oscar-worthy, he might get nominated, I think, in a movie that's no, okay, in a movie that's not so good. <laughs> oh, God. There's a lot, there's I mean, a lot, obviously. Well, you're opening up, I mean, let's just keep this to music biopics, sure. right? Okay. Because you're opening up a supermarket's worth of a can of worms. I mean, the two things that everyone kind of gloms onto immediately are uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Johnny Cash and Walk the Line. And That is not a bad movie. That is not a bad movie. But go on. <laughs> well, I think, I, okay. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me skew a couple clicks to the left then. Do you really think that's a bad movie? No, I think it's an okay biopic. I think it was smart of them to focus on Johnny Cash and June Carter as the focus as opposed to just doing a standard cradle-to-grave yes. film of Johnny Cash, which, it, you know, that movie is as well. It literally starts in his childhood and then, you know, has the great posthumous thing of, like, he got better from drugs and then he made a couple albums and then he died and here's the real Johnny Cash. Yeah. Um, and R- then <laughs> Wrong kid died. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, then, uh, and then Jamie Foxx and Ray is what everyone points out, which I will say suggest is not the greatest biopic 
ever. Uh, see, dude, those movies are so much better than this movie, first of all. That, although they did combine to create Walk Hard, which is a, a greater achievement. But, yeah. but Which brings uh, us to another question. How yeah. can you make a music biopic after Walk Hard? Well, that's funny. I, you're getting ahead of ourselves, but I, I actually asked uh, James Mangold that, who directed... Uh, walk the line as well as Logan if we're talking X-Men but I asked uh, James Mangold about that and he's a little bit sensitive about Walk Hard because the studio that made Walk Hard turned down Walk the Line (laughs) and then went on to make the parody not only that but gave Walk Hard according to him a bigger budget than Walk the Line had (laughs) so actually you can understand I mean he thinks the movie's funny which it is it's absolutely hilarious but you can understand, actually, when you hear that, why he would be a little bit irked, not at Walk Hard, but at the studio. I mean, James Mangold was like, look, anything can become cliched. You just either execute it or you don't. And I, I think that's true. And I, and I think his theory, and, he, and he's still looking for exactly what you said, key parts of bands or singers' existences that you can turn into a tight movie rather than the birth to the grave kind of biopic. Yeah, when they make the inevitable official Kurt Cobain biopic, I wonder whether they're going to do... Yeah, I mean, you, some people count Gus Van Zandt's Last Days as kind of an unofficial look at, you know, the final days of Kurt Cobain, uh, which I don't, you know, have a problem with. I actually think it, if you look at it that way, it, it makes for a nice kind of fake biopic. Um, but oh when God, they make, I, I saw that movie. I completely forgot about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when they make the official, you know, about a boy, the movie, the story of Kurt Cobain biopic, I kind of wonder, I wonder whether they're going to start with him being a kid and then working up through his punk days and then his fame and then his disillusionment with fame and then his kind of flame out. Or if they're going to do, you know, what is kind of the second, there's actually three ways you can do a biopic, a music biopic we found. You can do the cradle to grave stuff, which is your your Ray or Walk the Line. Uh, you can focus on one element. And it's funny because a music biopic doesn't come to mind when I think about this, but I think of Capote, where you don't look at all of Truman Capote's life. You just look at him going from being a New York bon vivant to becoming the author of In Cold Blood and kind of reinventing the notion of like a true crime novel. Or you can do the kind of like collage, mix up, match up, take a bunch of things and kind of throw it in there and hope that you make an impressionist biopic, which like I'm not there, I think is like the great example, if not the greatest example of this. You know, that said, I would rather, much rather watch Walk the Line personally than I'm not there again. But we can agree to differ. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. you're, you're different. You're, you're a cineast. People can't <laughs> see this in Radio Land, <laughs> yeah. but I'm actually smoking a pipe uh, yeah. right now. And <laughs> yeah. I have on uh, uh, one of those college professor jackets with the elbow patches. So <laughs> I'll say stroking exa- my beard. I'll say exactly what James Mangold told me. I asked him after the parody of Walk Hard, does the idea of the conventional music biopic need to be? And he said, rethought? I don't know. I think you could say the same thing about the Western and Blazing Saddles. I think it's really important that filmmakers never lose sight of the fact that the only reason satire is powerful is that the form they're making fun of is powerful. I think he's absolutely right. And that's sort of what I was getting at at the beginning is that there's something inherent about, for me, about the music biopic format that can survive even the truly ridiculous. I think we've talked about the show, The Doors by Oliver Stone. There's something about watching the rise and fall and the exhilaration of it that just works cinematically. I think the same way, I don't like sports, but I love sports movies for the same reason. Right. Yeah. But I think the central problem with so many of them is you're having actors play some of the most iconic people that have ever lived. If they lip sync, it looks a little ridiculous. If they sing themselves, it can sound horrible. You lose the magic off. And I think the Queen movie is very effective at this. I think most of them, when you watch somebody else play John Lennon or whatever, as soon as they start singing, you just lose you lose the illusion. Uh, yes, lose. The, I was going to make some kind of Guns N' Roses joke, <laughs> yeah. as, as we'll learn when uh, when Lil Zan plays yeah. Axl Rose in the in the inevitable <laughs> biopic. 
poor Rami Malek is having a hard time in the press right now. Some of it very self-created, as uh, Brittany pointed out. He seems to be kind of bummed out that he really gave a very hardcore effort to recreating Freddie Mercury. And you were saying he, he worked with movement coaches and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And he delivered, I think no one has quibbled with the greatness of his performance, but everyone's kind of quibbling with the movie and I think he's upset about it. And then we should say that Brian Singer, the director of this movie, who, as we mentioned, is uh, famous for directing uh, various X-Men movies, some of which I like very much, had some personal issues during the movie. He's surrounded by rumors and personal issues, but he he just, you know, as one does, didn't show up for a couple days of, of shooting the movie and that was a problem and then was... <laughs> 90% of it done in the middle of a scene. And, you know, hey, it happens. You know, Scorsese only shows up about 90% of the time and then all those <laughs> movies come out. True but, story. Yeah, but that was a problem. He said he was taking care of an elderly parent that's been disputed, he, whatever. But And then the studio actually yanked his production credit, I guess, his punishment, although he kept the directing credit. Some of the movie was not even directed by him. And then we sort of know that he clashed with Rami Malek. We don't know that much about it. In fact, the only thing that Rami Malek has sort of admitted to as a creative dispute, which is weird giving something uh, I'll say in a second, is, is he says that if it was up to him, the m- movie would have focused more on Freddie is a gay man. Now that's interesting, and he, you know, he said I fought really hard. Brittany, you, as you were pointing out, he, on the other hand, he said some other stuff. Yeah, I think he's sort of been going back and forth in the press and not really knowing how to address it. I mean, he's sort of indicated that Freddie was that he wasn't gay in some interviews, and he did say, like he said, like, oh, he's really private. We can't really assume anything or we can't really say anything about his life and he'd want it that way and I think in some ways kind of defending aspects of the movie or aspects of what people were expecting from the film and also trying to appease what are greater truths about Freddie that we know so someone was saying that when people said uh, Freddie was a, a gay icon Rami was a, a human icon and, and that that mm-hmm. seems ill-advised the, the IndieWire interview yeah where but I, I think that's been happening numerous times and I think the idea being that in, in their mind you can't just think of him as a gay icon I don't know if they're saying that because of what we were saying before mm-hmm. about his private sexuality I don't know if they don't want to turn off potential viewers in 2018 I don't know why the reason is but I will say that when I did talk to Singer I he kept saying oh this is such a personal project for me um, this was right after they they were in production I, they just finished filming the live aid stuff and we're getting ready because they filmed that first and he had said it's such a personal movie for me and I said oh well why what's your personal connection to Queen and he says you know as a young gay man looking at Freddie Mercury he was very much a gay icon and he was someone who I looked up to he was someone who flouted his sexuality and didn't admit to it and that I'm proud to like tell this story of this person who's so important to my community and then he added but maybe he wasn't gay we don't know <laughs> yeah, he was very private we don't know to say. factually speaking there's evidence that Freddie might have thought he was bi you know there was a woman he had a quote passionate affair with in the 80s so and then and Brian Singer himself said he was dating a woman two years ago. So people's sexualities are, are complicated. So, But the movie handles the whole thing <laughs> in a little bit of a peculiar way. It's a, a PG-13 movie. I think there was a fear when they, in the first trailer, they showed him with the woman he married and, and never with any men. And, and people were freaking out, yeah. understandably, that this was going to be just a total straight, wa- like insane straight watching of one of the most famous uh, gay men who ever lived. But no, it's not like that. But because of the PG-13 thing and because of reasons I can't even begin to to guess at there's something 
stagey about the way that his gay life is handled. It's very chaste hedonism, which yeah. seems very odd, especially when you combine it with what seems to be like a community college production of Cruising when he goes to a leather bar. <laughs> yes, very it's, it's the same leather bar from The Sopranos, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird in that it is directed that Brian Singer, you know, is a proud gay man. It's directed like someone who's never met a gay person sometimes. And it's, it's just weird. But I think it's basically like, imagine it's this guy's friends who were never perhaps totally comfortable with this aspect of his life guiding the movie. Right. And so I think that that's definitely what... And so, yeah, again, it wasn't so much that he lost himself in decadence as he was neglecting the band. That's what they were worried about. But yeah. And yeah, I think of that scene at the truck stop when he sort of catches eyes with that guy as he's walking into the bathroom. He's on the phone. He's on the phone with his right. wife. Yeah. Right? right. Just so ham-fisted yeah. and it's kind just, of hard just, to watch. It's just peculiar how it doesn't feel... Or, or It just feels inorganic and just not well done, I think. I don't know. Yeah, there does was, it feel salacious either. It's kind of very weird. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. There was that scene like in the beginning when he first meets Mary and it's like he like a guy checks him out and then like he meets her and he checks her out. It's like very I think they wanted to sort of attempt the complexities of his own sexuality, his own identity, which I think would have been a better movie to kind of dig deep into that. And yeah. I think that it felt like an afterthought to a lot of sort of like the band mythology building and everything that they were attempting to do with the actual structure of the film. But. I mean, what was it like to be a closeted gay man in one of the biggest rock bands in the world yeah. in the middle of like Cock Rock Arena Central? Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, and well, hide an AIDS diagnosis for years. This is an interesting question for you, Andy. Do you think it is true that when Freddie grew his mustache and cut his hair, mm-hmm. that fans threw razors on stage? Huh. This is one of the most repeated things. It's in Michael Gilmore's story for us. I just don't believe that actually happened. It may have happened a time or two, then it gets exaggerated. I don't know for sure. Because think but, about that. They had to bring the razors. They had to get the razors all the right. way to the front of the arena. They had to, like, <laughs> they're not the security back then. Just, I don't know. Yeah. I seem preoccupied with the planning of this. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I just don't buy it. It seems like a myth. They're very small objects. He, he had to kneel down and be like, why? This is a razor. They want me to... I don't know. It just, it just seems like bullshit to me. I'm sorry. That said, if you have a myth that good... Mm-hmm. Why would you not include it in the, in the movie? Mm-hmm. I was just picturing this like nightmarish slow-mo onslaught of razors, which is how this movie would handle it if it did, I'm because sure. there's a press conference scene that's <laughs> yeah, it's, another one that veers on self-parody. It's the strangest press conference of, of all time. It's a press conference where the journalists are just going after him like maniacs about his sexuality, which is unlike any press conference in the history of mankind. And it's it, so hostile. And I guess he did have a thing of parrying with the press, but they have him like he's Dylan in, in 65. Yeah. You know, oh, your parents proud of you. Yeah. Like it was just, yeah. it's just like I, I don't know. It didn't. It seemed like all of a sudden it, it was another character altogether. Yeah. Uh, but it's also they were doing a lot of like surreal sort of like the flashbows are flashing and it's all in slow mo and I'm it's just so a, disoriented. Yeah, and, yeah and, and you actually, it seemed like it's building to someone passing out. That's usually what would happen, right. or or maybe peeing himself like Stars Born. That maybe that it seemed like it was going somewhere, but it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's just all these questions of just like, are you gay, sir? At some Stop long, lying, at sir. long last, yeah, yeah. are you gay? Yeah, sir? at some press event. Which which is always just fluff questions. The, fluff, I mean, the only thing that was completely realistic is the Brian May going, does anyone have any questions about the music? Yeah. And that, that is real as hell. That is definitely how it goes. We did make an album, you know. Um, <laughs> tell that to uh, Johnny Mars fans the other week. Overall, I think what I felt worked 
and Brittany was saying this, is all the performances. And in fact, it worked to the extent that I think it's one of those movies in like, you know, five, ten years, we're given now, like two years, you'll be hearing from some kid who's like, I decided to start like a rock band because I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. And that's no small thing as much as we've been totally clowning on this movie. I thought it was actually did as well as anything I've seen recently to cinematically remind people of like this sort of power of a live rock band. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, I think Rami fully grasped the charisma that made Freddie Mercury so legendary and iconic during that time and still now. And the extended scene with Live Aid I loved that made the entire film kind of okay. <laughs> so It's funny, I was talking before the show with Alan Light, uh, our uh, Rolling Stone colleague, who also uh, is a host here on Volume, and he really didn't like the fact that he devoted so much time mm-hmm. to Live Aid. My counter-argument was that Live Aid was like 34 years ago. Yeah, A lot of the younger people seeing this movie are not familiar with Live Aid, and Live Aid itself was not able to be filmed so dramatically, mm-hmm. and Live Aid also had the disadvantage of having actual people in the audience rather than a CGI crowd that sometimes looks super <laughs> fake, but I totally got it, and I thought it was pretty thrilling, honestly. Yeah, yeah and there was a major, major moment in their career. It was the first time where you saw the group play for anything more than like 20 seconds or something, so you really got the power of the band at the very end. That said, part of me really wanted the camera to start roaming elsewhere backstage and show like Bob Dylan and Ron Wood getting drunk before they went on, and just... That was I, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you just got fact-checked. <laughs> the camera could roam really far over yeah. to Philadelphia. <laughs> they got died straights right because they played salt into swing at the end of their set before queen and you could hear that in their trailer so i enjoyed that that's cool and as far as accuracy the guys who played the musicians did have their fingers in the right places like i especially noticed that with bizarre brian made that he's down to like if the pinky and the ring finger would be used to play a solo uh, as a guitar player i noticed he nailed that and that that's unusual actually to that extent and john deacon's haircut at live aid is the worst haircut in the history of haircuts all right the weird puffy they got it Perfect. So that was well done. <laughs> I think points I, for accuracy. You know, I will say this that one of the early criticisms that we heard once the reviews started trickling out for this was that as impressive as the Live Aids set was in the film, people kept saying they act like you can't go on YouTube and watch all like 16 minutes of this. But A, I think it was interesting that you brought up the idea that a lot of younger people wouldn't necessarily know about this and to see that, to see what is considered, if not the greatest, one of the three greatest live you know sets ever recorded is major. It's absolutely very major. And anybody can sit and ape. I can do a great air guitar right now of, you know, we will rock you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm capturing the spirit of being on that stage with those three other people in front of thousands of folks. Absolutely, like giving them the power of rock. And I think the way that it shows all this and keeps with it and how they sustain this entire set in the performance is really like the highlight of the movie mm-hmm. by far. Brian Singer is a fan of, of these totally faked CG shots that sometimes can be really cool. He had one in the in the last X-Men movie that was like that. Sorry, it's gonna be, we're mostly talking about X-Men. <laughs> but there's a shot where the camera basically, in my memory, basically goes from the top of the stadium all the way to Freddie Mercury's piano. And I actually thought that was really cool because that's what, in a stadium concert, if you're like at the top of the stadium, that's what you wish is that you could like zoom in that close and see like the the dust on the piano. And that was really cool. And it made me think that there's actually more to be done with sort of really cool concert Yeah, I mean, it's the the difference between recreating the broadcast of that set from Live Aid and recreating what it was actually like to be on that stage. And like you said, really wonderfully right now, like that's what you want as a fan. That's what you want when you're an audience and you want to be on that stage with Queen. And the 
fact that they actually do that and don't make it just seem like the most epic karaoke session you've ever seen is it's an it's an accomplishment. And it, it's hard to balance that. You know, you need to get to that, and then you have to you have all this other stuff, like we said, of people sitting around talking. We've discussed this before in Stars Born and other things. There's nothing more inherently dramatically dangerous as far as like getting inadvertent laughs as the process of creating something especially something you already know about I've used this example before but I just love it so much where Brittany writes quote unquote not a girl not yet a woman in the movie Crossroads is the ultimate example of this where, where you just you just watch them compose and it's just inherently ridiculous and there's a few what did you think of the scene where Rami sits down and is sort of works himself into a trance and does the beginning of Bohemian Rhapsody did that work for you or no when he's under the piano when yeah. he was with Mary no, uh, well, or no, was in the studio no, no, when, he, when he's he's out oh, yeah. walking in the field, then he comes in and starts playing it on, on yeah, piano. I I thought that that was somewhat effective. I thought that the making of that song that wasn't too ridiculous the way it was presented. Did those scenes work for you? Yeah, I like the kind of montage of them recording Bohemian Rhapsody. But was, the other ones, it felt like so excessive because it did feel like, hey, this band member wrote this song. Just oh, yeah. so you know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but like <laughs> that one felt like a really good band moment in a film. That's a great point. That was a really cool moment. Uh, th- there some very funny things where they're um who's the one who sings the galileo part uh, that was roger taylor. roger taylor their direction to him on the galileo thing was just higher as if yeah. that's how you communicate musically like just like not eight. like a fifth higher not an octave higher <laughs> just yeah. higher you know it doesn't really yeah. matter what note just higher yeah. <laughs> it's just and like laughable what's sort of interesting is to end it at live aid when you could argue that the most dramatic part of his whole life was the final years as he's dying mm-hmm. of aids and he's still making music as hard as he can they're making innuendo as he's dying well you see because that's the freddie mercury biopic starts with his childhood yeah. and ends with him in his final years the queen biopic ends at live aid but they toured the next year and it was so awesome and then they made so much it, it, right <laughs> but dramatic the dramatic peak though is and that that might be the problem do we think that it's any chance that it's true what sasha baron cohen said that the original screenplay had Freddie die halfway no, through the movie? No. I, when I spoke <laughs> to the producer, he was very convincing that every single version of every script, every discussion that is him dying or live aid, that to do half the movie about the Paul Rogers tour of like 2005 <laughs> would have been the most ridiculous thing. So like they're watching Bad Company. And you would have loved that movie. <laughs> I want part two where it's all about the Paul Rogers era. I want the sequel that's yeah. like all about yeah, Adam where, Lambert. <laughs> where they're driving the car. They're like, okay, we need a new singer. Then on comes Bad Company. They're like, hey. They, when they've told me since then that he was a huge mistake. It was the wrong sound. Whereas Adam Lambert, however, is the well, perfect he is, singer. he is much better than, for much, them than, than Paul much, Rogers. much better. Yeah. Paul Rogers is like, they picked him out of the phone book, basically. It was a bizarre <laughs> choice. You know, I think he was willing to say yes. He brought some of his own hits to it but they recorded did a they, new album of did, new songs with him that's completely forgotten so is there footage on YouTube of like Paul Rogers singing All Right Now with Queen oh yeah that exists it sure does and I think they did feel like making love also what about Radioactive no but I think the song Bad Company <laughs> they played so it's Queen performing like Bad Company's Bad Company it's so bizarre did they perform songs by the firm no they were, it was it was mainly Queen songs it was a fiasco and their new album is the most forgotten album that's ever been made by a big band so there was a Queen Paul Rogers album of all new songs. It's been erased from history. Well, see, this was a, a great twenty minutes of the screenplay, the yeah. recording of that album, <laughs> the songwriting, like, how they signed the record contract, yeah. who signed it first? Did Paul yeah. Rogers sign? How did they negotiate the royalties? All did, this would have been. Did covered. they call the band Freen? No, it was Queen plus Paul Rogers, and now it's Queen plus Adam Lambert. Right, so anyway, you believe them? You don't think that there was some deranged plan to make a Queen biopic no, that ended it happy? Would, yeah. I love Sasha Baron Cohen. I want to believe him on that, but it's ridiculous. I mean, I just can't imagine a screenplay where half of it is... 
finding Paul Rogers. <laughs> I think knowing Sasha Baron Cohen, he picked an idea that he knew that was hilarious, and he picked it because people would remember it, and it makes them look so ridiculous. Well, then he might have had an axe to grind. And too. Yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he picked yeah. he picked the, the scenario in which they look hilariously stupid, and then beat it to well, grind that axe exactly. And, and I was told by the producer that they didn't want a white guy; that he thought that that was a bad idea. Well, they didn't want one, except they signed one. And then after he left, they said they didn't want one. But I think that would have been a, a mistake, yeah, for sure. But I think they're, they're only retroactively saying He that. said they didn't ever sign Sacha Baron Cohen that. They're just talking to him. Uh-huh. Was his version of events. <laughs> My guess is that Sacha Baron Cohen's breaking point was the teeth. Yeah. Yes, and let's talk briefly about the teeth. The, the teeth are- <laughs> I was saying that the teeth are very impressive. I was saying that if they make the parody of this movie, the teeth need to get bigger every scene. Yeah, <laughs> more uh, mercury molars. Best yeah. supporting actor. Yeah. For the when teeth. I spoke to Rami, he said the moment that they put the teeth in is the moment that he felt like Freddy. That for him, it was extremely important that each morning on the set, when they'd put the teeth in, he'd become Freddy. So you know, he I guess had extra room in his mouth, which in reality probably did create some real resonance, like it created a more resonant voice. But in the movie, they have him saying it gave him more range, and I was saying in the break that that drives me insane it would not give him more range it would increase the resonance of his voice range of your singing does not come from your mouth that's not how singing works you don't <laughs> sing from your mouth like come on i thought it's a bunch of musicians who made this all right so we're this not, is, singers. Yeah, not singers not well, singers no but they are singers they oh, sing great right. background vocals yeah that's the weird thing is they, yeah. they sing entirely from their mouth there's, there's no vocal cords involved that's how brian may sings he's an astrophysicist and he figured they, this out they sing entirely from their mouth that's right now we've uh, been poking a little fun at, at Bohemian Rhapsody, though, although as I, I said, I, I, I still enjoyed it. But you know, the critics have not been kind, and it has its its moments of uh, silliness. It's too bad that we're giving it a hard time because it plays into a history between Queen and Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone uh, back in the day, and I, you know, I think we'd all acknowledge now that Queen uh, was a great and important band back in the day. As actually has been discussed in ancient history on this podcast, Rolling Stone's critics were especially hostile to Queen. Dave Marsh, the legendary critic, uh, <laughs> once wrote that they were perhaps rock's first truly fascist band, which was, you know, uh, what he was responding to was, you know, kind of like we are the champions and not hearing the sort of the gay man subtext to it or anything and just and and we will rock you just hear, hearing it that way but uh you know so that that was perhaps unkind and i will say that when i did talk to brian may when i first started rolling stone uh and i talked to him actually about the paul rogers tour that actually did happen and uh we were on the phone and he the first thing he said is how long have you been at Rolling Stone and I was like two weeks and he's like okay good we can talk you know because I didn't <laughs> not now of course after this podcast I'm back on the bad list but there was a terrible relationship with Queen and Rolling Stone and they, they never were on the cover the truth is they also were not a critically beloved band in general and this is the only music biopic I've ever seen that included the bad reviews they got uh, and it was yeah. specifically for Bohemian Rhapsody I guess to kind of point out how quote unquote wrong all the critics were yeah I think that they were a very British band and they're always bigger overseas. In the movie, he says that he doesn't want to tour America again because of their response to the video where they're in drag. But in reality, they didn't tour the States on the last like three tours because they weren't selling tickets. You know, I think that the Rolling Stone critics just saw them as a British hard rock band that wasn't the kind of stuff that they liked at all. Not socially conscious, you know, and, and, and I, I understand where they were coming from. I think that it was largely misguided. Oh, yeah. It, I think it was hugely misguided. It's just, I think that they were so popular and they got popular so quickly and so much of it was just, you know, boom, boom, ch. 
boom, boom, that to some old school rock critic is just like garbage, you know. Well, for an old school rock critic too, was it the kind of blending of genres they were doing and stuff like A Night at the Opera that was yeah, throwing them off I as well? I think they were seen as a prog band, which is a little unfair, and they were all despised. You know, it was just not the kind of stuff that your Dave Marsh's thought was great music. It, it, it was not Bruce Springsteen. It was not Bob Dylan. It was not John Lennon. It was populist stadium crap in their minds. Tacky, um, with lyrics that didn't mean anything, just superficial. And for teenagers. Yeah, yeah. for teenagers. Superficial technical accomplishments without meaning anything, that kind of thing. That was not the. But in the end, I mean, you know, who had a better guitar tone than Brian May? And I, I personally was disappointed that there wasn't a scene of his dad chopping down their fireplace or whatever to make his guitar that is one of the coolest <laughs> things of all time how do you not even include it's director's cut yeah direct, <laughs> I, I, in, in all seriousness like if you want to make the movie about the other guys how come they never have any arc whatsoever i think even if a movie made just about freddie mercury might have given more of a subplot mm -hmm. to give distinct personality mm. the only thing they do is is uh, make sure that we know that the bass player got laid a lot that seemed to be one of the things that they really wanted to yeah. get across <laughs> i feel like that was his note to be like but what about the sex i was having <laughs> Just, just, it's like, funny no, too no, how it, yeah. it keeps toggling between being a frontman biopic and a band biopic mm -hmm. and I think that's one of its problems in fact is it never quite figures out exactly what it wants yeah. to be when yeah. I spoke to the producer he said that they went through so many screenplays year after year after year very different takes on it that just to, to find a two hour version with a good arc was just torturous. So I imagine that they tried everything. Huh, yeah. I, I, Brittany, seemed like you were going to say something. No, yeah. I mean, I think it lost both sides of that. Like, it lost kind of like the idea of building a great band story versus building a great Freddy story because I think that it's really comes down to choosing one or the other. If you put Rami Malek into a really gritty, complex... R-rated version of Freddie Mercury's life that still had the Live Aid stuff and still had the thing. I think in the end, we'll see. It's possible that would have even been a better commercial well, yeah. decision. But it's doing shockingly well. Yeah. I That's think, what I say. We'll I, see. Yeah. I think maybe if they made it R and families can go see it, it wouldn't become this thing now that it's doing shockingly well. It's going to be a big hit. I think if this kicks off any trend, it's going to be music biopics starring Remy Malik. So he'll play Robert Plant <laughs> in the Zeppelin story. He'll play Sid Barrett in the Pink Floyd story. Because it's, well, yeah. it's really just about swapping out the teeth if you just <laughs> if he can actually play any part tight trousers and teeth yeah, yeah. with the right teeth he can play aretha franklin I would say. <laughs> controversial controversial, controversial but I, i'll yeah. say it aretha by the way sang at freddie's funeral so that's interesting yeah. this has been today's rolling stone music now i would still actually recommend you see bohemian rhapsody we'll be back next week if everyone else is shaking their head here on sirius xm's volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcast maybe leave us a nice review on itunes and we'll see you next Friday and as always thanks for listening Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.